welcome back to Chaos Cast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health. On the panel today are Daniel, Anita, Sophia, Sean, and myself, Georg. The topic of today's episode is using chaos metrics and software for research. So everyone that is on the panel is here as a researcher who has worked in some capacity with metrics, with software, analyzing open source projects, and we want to share our experience with that. Let's do a round where we introduce ourselves. Daniel, please go ahead. Hello, hello. This is Daniel. So I've been in chaos since its inception. I'm CEO of Viterio as well, part of the governing board of Chaos and president at the Innersource Commons. So it's a pleasure to be around. Hi, I'm Anita. I'm a professor at Oregon State University with my research being on open source and inclusive open source. I have been involved with Chaos because of all the metrics we have been using and working with Viterio and Sean and Sophia. So it's all fun stuff here. Hello, Sophia Vargas here from Google. I'm a program manager and a research and analyst. Don't really know how to define my role these days, but I focus on a lot of research and operational issues and questions and efforts. I'm also working with the Chaos community since 2020, so it's been a couple of years now. Been an active member of the board as well as various other sub-working groups where we talk about metrics in various spaces. So happy to be here today and talking about metrics yet again. And I'm Sean Goggins, professor of computer science at the University of Missouri. I'm also one of the current co-chairs for the Chaos Project in the Linux Foundation and one of the co-founders of the project itself. I also maintain a software project called Augur here on the Chaos Project. And I am Georg Link. I'm the director of sales at Petrugia. In the Chaos Project, I'm one of the co-founders. I love hosting this podcast. I also work on the board and do a few other things around the project. One of my recent highlights is the chaos con that we had in Brussels around FOSDEM. So every time we have an opportunity to get together, I think that is really awesome. So because as our topic is saying chaos metrics, I just wanted to make a little bit aside and say that researchers have been looking at open source since early 2000s. And it is one of the reasons it's such an amazing, rich place to look at what's happening inside software development, the processes, because of the data that we can actually mine, because everything is public and open. So people have been looking at open source and data, such as number of commits, who's making what commits, when are they making commits, how long does it take for a commit to be accepted back in the old days? Now it is pull requests getting accepted, right? So research has been looking at metrics on software development on open source for a long time. And what I feel like Chaos did a great job was kind of taking a step back and pulling all these different metrics that researchers were using for different purposes into a common umbrella. So I think there are a lot of nuances and Chaos, the committee has been talking about what those metrics would be. So maybe, Sean, you had some ideas about it that you could just add to that. You're completely right. Metrics have been used by researchers to understand open source software for decades. What I think chaos has done, which is useful, is created a standard taxonomy for what, for example, a commit is. We spent, I would estimate, between 12 and 18 months at the start of the project, arriving at a consensus among researchers about how to count a commit and how to count lines of code and what's in and what's out. Because different researchers had taken different approaches to the nuances like how do I address white space? How do I count comments? Is a merge commit counted as a commit to the code? All of these very seemingly innocent questions actually sparked a good deal of debate at the start. So I think what we do is just provide a standard way of saying, this is how we count this thing. And if you count it this way, you're counting it the same way as somebody else. It's not right or wrong. We don't have the best way. It's just a consistent way. Thinking about that as well before this, I kind of wanted to ask this question back to this group of researchers, but acknowledging that there always has been some discrepancy in both how we calculate metrics as well as how we define them. And I know at least in my own case, it's often been 
Subject to the data sources that I have more than anything, it would be amazing to be able to define something in the perfect way and then fill the data in to do that. But often we're kind of doing this backwards because we have one source and we're trying to fit it into what best looks like commit in this particular set of data. And something that I really appreciated about reading from the academic community is the format itself lends itself to rich descriptions and methodology in terms of how things are assembled and how things are being defined. But my work often kind of bleeds more into less sophisticated or documented formats like blogs and little white papers that I might write that not necessarily going through the same rigor. And something that I would really love to see would get feedback from the research community on is how we can create more standard ways to talk about how these things are assembled and how they're defined, especially for those that end up publishing on these numbers and not necessarily in an academic context. But I would love to learn from how academics ensure they're rigorously defining the methodologies and say even how we're defining the metric itself to ensure that it aligns with what we do. That's a rounded question to say that. If I may enter into the conversation, what I would say is that depends a lot on the role that you're playing in your own organization. So my definition of the way researchers do research is basically by building a defensive wall for your castle, right? So then it's, I really need to be sure that what I'm doing, I can defend against others. And that means be sure that what you are saying is basically actually true. So you need to go to the very detailed, very specific thing of what you are doing. So then the methodology, the threats to validity, all of these are key. Probably those are kind of the most important aspects sometimes from a paper or publication at some point. If we go to the other way around, basically from the industry perspective, then it's more about the results themselves than anything else. And then, of course, methodology and everything is important, but because you have those results up front, then this is where discussion starts. So then that depends a lot where you are. So then if you go to an academic venue, then the kind of discussions you will have and the people think probably is very methodological, threats to validity and going into results. And then maybe at some point you think of the results. We can even think of this from a cultural perspective, because in the US, when people present things, it is results first, this is what they got. And then maybe you enter into context. But perhaps if you come to Europe, you start with context and methodology, and then you finish with results. So that depends a lot on where you are and who you are, I would say. I would like to defend some academics here. <laughs> sure. You care about results. <laughs> so we always talk about <laughs> in the paper, first is, what is the problem? Why is the problem a problem? You know what you have done, but you know, the takeaways are important, but not <laughs> taking that as a problem piece. But yeah, so we do define a lot about the method, but that's because we want to make sure things are applicable. And I think that's where Sophia is trying to get towards. So maybe just throwing out there, and then I think Sean wants to say something there. I would like to just say, maybe even if not as part of the blog, maybe as an appendix or something, that just a table with examples sometimes is helpful just to know what the data looks like. When I read research papers that look at open source software, I don't think we as researchers do a very good job describing our methods with enough completeness so that somebody could actually replicate what we did in most cases. Most of the time when I read an academic research paper, there's a piece missing or an assumption that I have to make about how the data was retrieved. So my perspective would be that I think we could help the research community and the open source community a great deal by being a little bit more demanding and description of methods that we ask our peers to provide. I would add to this conversation, so my background is in academia as well. So I was doing a PhD on free software engineering. And then there is a way to communicate things in academia, and there is a way to communicate things in the industry. So it's not the same, Anita and so on. Well, everyone here has been at the Open Source Summit, for instance, right? So then the kind of talks are way different. And then I wanted to bring an anecdote here from when I finished the PhD, then we founded Viterdia, and then we started having conversations with people on the kind of things that we were able to produce. So we were kind of contaminated, let me say, on the kind of things that we were able to do versus the kind of things that the market out there was requesting. So it was like, oh, we can do all of these statistical analysis, all of these really complex things. But then after all, people were only interested in counting, let me say, potatoes because they were interested in literally counting commits, assigning them to organizations and things like this. I'm mentioning counting potatoes because this is, if not the first paper, one of the very first by Jesus Gonzalez Barona, that was my PhD advisor. And this is basically, the title was Counting Potatoes, the Size of Debian 2.2. 
So this is where it all started here. That's why sometimes I mention potatoes. How big are the potatoes? Yes. Because that's going to depend on how many rail cars does it take to haul them. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear, Daniel, you mentioned your transition from academia into industry. And I know you already mentioned that you had a community built around the metrics and what Biturgia was providing, which then later we transitioned into the chaos community when we started to have that more formally in the Linux Foundation. How have you seen the chaos efforts around defining metrics and establishing standards for software impact the way that researchers can do research today that may or may not have been possible before? Okay, let me start with kind of a disclaimer. I would say in software engineering uh, communities and so on, we are still describing the problem. That's why we can discuss about if computer science or so is an engineering or not probably mostly a science, and we are still describing what we see. So I would say that in chaos, we are describing what we are learning. And chaos is a reflection of the people that are working in chaos. So if there's someone that is interested in diversity and inclusion, then there might be a working group in diversity and inclusion, which is what happens in, in chaos, right? If there are people that are interested in vulnerabilities or security or risk, then there are certain chances that there will be a working group at some point on this. So the relationship or basically the work that I see that we are doing in KR right now is that we've already mentioned in the past is we are still describing what we see. We are still making sense of this. We are restructuring sometimes internally chaos. Oh, we change the name of the working group. We change some of the metrics. We try to aggregate things in different ways. So we had metrics at the beginning, now metrics models. Now suddenly we are deciding to move into a different space because we are simply describing, but we are observing stuff. I'm also happy to hear thoughts from everyone else on the panel. Maybe, Sean, you have built tools for academics, with Augur specifically. How have you seen that now we have more capacity through chaos? This is my assumption. Maybe you can disagree, but my assumption is because of chaos, academia has more capacity. When I first started studying open source software back in 2010, there weren't very many tools or any really good tools for getting the trace data that you would need to construct many chaos metrics. And I think as chaos emerged, Grimoire Lab, that tool set came to my horizon and became a pretty useful place for us to start. And as a researcher, we created Augur because we wanted to have these ways of understanding open source software kind of on a very large scale. So instead of looking at everything as an event, we started to look at tens of thousands of repositories and using chaos metrics to classify or categorize them. And I think what we have is an increased capacity through some combination of the Grimoire Lab and Augur tool sets to make sense of the online behavior that occurs in open source software. It's easier for us or possible I think impossible is maybe the word I would use to discern the human behavior and the use of language in open source in a way now that simply wasn't possible before we had the software. There's a capacity or an opportunity for researchers that's probably underutilized at this point, which is fine because we'd like to publish it first, but we'd also like to share. I would totally echo what Tanja said here. So... Before I worked with Biturgia for the contract we did for ASF, I have been using these metrics. And even now, most of the regular empirical work we do, we just use GitHub APIs because it's there. We can just do it. It takes a little bit of time because of the throttling and stuff, but it is more or less easy, especially we have the scripts and we have our system going on. But where Grimoire Lab really helped me was when we were going from just, hey, let's collect data to look at stuff, to actually creating interventions, actually creating dashboards and things that open source communities can then use for looking at their own community project. So I felt Grimoire Lab, at least from my perspective, was really amazing in collecting the amounts of data, doing the monitoring, all the facilities that came because we were using Biturgia to create the dashboard that would be real time, that would be automatically updated. And that whole 
tool set that comes with it, right? So we use the dashboard to not only just do the counting of potatoes, like the number of comments, number of contributors, but also much more deeper analysis, right? Time to first pull request merge or even looking at the social network analysis. And all of these are really computationally heavy. So when we have to write our research papers, we usually take a short time frame because that's what we can do. But because we partnered with Bittergia slash Grimoire Lab, we were able to create this tooling that was actually live. The infrastructure could be deployed. And we did something what in research we call participatory design. We worked with Apache Beam to kind of understand what is it that the community wanted to look at the health of the community and be able to create these metrics and show them, present them, and see how they were actually using those metrics. Just to add here, perhaps some more historical context is that Grimoire Lab, well, previously in the previous technology, it was called Metrics Grimoire. So it is key in research to be able to repeat the research. So we needed tools that allow us basically to repeat once again the usual analysis that we were doing. Then it happened that because we had this open source tools analyze open source projects, then we started to have this community of academics initially because those were the places where we were going around and explaining we are using this technology, you can use the technology and run the technology if you want. We can help you if you are interested. And that helped to grow that kind of community and awareness. And the thing is that by having not only Grimoire Lab or any other tool out there in the research is allowing people, and specifically the Brickell Software Engineering, which is the field I came from, to have that traceability capabilities, allow others to try and do exactly the same research that you were doing. And that's key for the success of scientific publications, basically. I want to thank everyone. When you talk about studies that you have done and the experience you bring in, that you're also including what the study was about and how you've gone about it and learned in it. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you for doing that. So keep that going. And another study that we can talk about where we used chaos metrics and software is the open source usage study that we haven't quite officially published yet, but it's been accepted. Sophia, do you want to talk about some high-level things that we can share? Sure. The basic premise of the article was that measuring open source usage has been a both highly sought after and highly fraught topic from many angles, from those that want to understand who's using their tool to know how to better support it and better support the components that are in active use to those that don't want any information about them being collected as an open source end user. And so there's always been some inherent tension between how maintainers and project leads can understand the value of what they make and how it's perceived by those who use it and whether or not the information that they can get already is sufficient enough to help them make the case of that. So one thing that we wanted to do is that because many projects aren't able to collect usage telemetry, we were curious if other available public metrics that can be collected about activity, because these are projects that are happening on public platforms with public trace data, can we collect enough alternative non-direct metrics or proximate metrics that can indicate what is happening on the usage side. So that's the general premise. And we thankfully had a project, Flutter, that was willing to share their usage data, one of the few projects that does collect usage data. And we took what they gave us and tried to pull as many similar approximate metrics from public sources to try to validate if we could get trends or insights of trends from about usage and correlate that to actual usage. And this was... A very like simple project in theory and execution, there's always going to be a little bit more complexity that comes up. And in this particular conversation, I think what was an interesting part was how we could take something like general chaos metrics and have to narrow them into the most alike version of that metric to match the sample data that we were working with. So in this case, we're looking at monthly active users. And so we wanted to create, instead of something like number of issue authors, how do you pick a metric that actually would be most similar to monthly active users and say narrowing that down into unique issue authors per month and sort of basically having that additional specificity created around each metric to try to create the most would-be-like metrics for our approximation and for our correlation analysis. 
So as Garrick said, we did submit this to a conference and it will be published and shared. And maybe by the time this podcast is live, we can link it in the show notes, but maybe that's a pipe dream. But it was helpful to have sort of that base of metrics to build from, but also there is sort of an extra layer of how to provide the context you need and narrow the metric to the context that is most relevant for your case that I think nothing is ever a simple cookie cutter experiment. So that was a nice kind of confirmation of that as well as actively trying to recreate. We thought we wanted to with tools like Grimoire Labs and GitHub Archive and the API directly and the Slack API. And it is always a little bit more complex in practice. So Garrick, I don't know if you wanted to highlight anything else specific from that, but that was sort of my takeaway from trying to shove the metrics into a usable format for this particular project. Yeah. For those listeners that are interested in being the first to find the paper, it is going to be part of the MSR conference. What does MSR stand for? Mining Software Repositories. Thank you. So this is coming out in April this year. I have a little bit of a philosophical segue to this. So this is amazing, right? We're talking about metrics and we're talking about different types of metrics, even like OSS consumption metric, which was hard to do. And then Sophia talked about a whole bunch of APIs. But sometimes I wonder... Are we only collecting the things that we can see and therefore our entire community's perspective and scientific inquiry is the data that we are able to collect and that's what we believe it is, that it is, right? It's this drunken guy searching for his keys under the lamppost and when someone says, why are you searching here? It's like, this is where the light is. Where else would I search, right? Metrics are awesome because without metrics, we don't have a ground truth. We do not know what the data is. But I also want to caution to keep that grain of salt that what we are seeing might be just half or even less than half of the actual stuff going on. And second, the more we try to highlight this metrics, people might start gamifying this metrics, right? If number of comments is useful, people will make lots of number of comments. So there is a darker side of the metrics that we should make sure we are aware of. One of the reasons I know that I'm involved in the chaos project, and this is a very deep field engagement that's been going on for eight years. It is so much more for me as a researcher than the data that we mine off of APIs. I don't think I could make reasonable sense of the human behavior that underlies that data if I wasn't engaged in these open source communities and engaged with projects in the Linux Foundation. And if I didn't keep field notes that helped me to understand the context of what's happening. I can tell a story briefly from my early career. I submitted what's called an NSF careers proposal, making this case that you have to not just use trace data, but you have to bring social science into it. I referred to the act of doing it without that social scientific work as computational mysticism. I got three excellence and a poor. The poor was from a computer scientist, and I did not get that grant. So I've since learned to tone my rhetoric down a little bit to be more better, I suppose. I love it. I think the title of this episode should be Counting Potatoes versus Computational Mysticism. There's so many thoughts and feelings in this because I agree with what everyone has said so far and bring in my former life here, but I spent the first part of my career in market research and a lot of that is designing surveys and collecting data about people. So not exactly the same trace data that we're dealing with most of the cases when we're talking about metrics around open source projects. But in this case, we're still curating a data set about a thing or a topic or a group of people. And when you build a survey and you design it and you run it, it is by default bias, by the things that you have written. You have a specific target. You're creating filters to make sure you're finding the right people that can answer your question about open source infrastructure, which is a subset of the population, which is a subset of computer science or related professionals, and typically even a subset of that because they have to have used the specific technologies you're interested in asking about. So we have to filter it down and down until we get to the right people. And so when you source this type of information, a typical methodology for market researchers is you list the number of people you spoke with, the filters, who you were targeting, say, software engineers at mid-sized organizations in the United States, and then you add in when you fielded it and potentially a source of who funded this particular survey or the goals of the survey, something like that. But I think what's really missing from that is I would love to flip this sourcing method on its head to say, like, when we pick that number of participants, what's the total pool of possible people? 
trying to understand how when we draw these filters and subsets around, who are we excluding from that and to make the exclusion more visible. You always want to know who you spoke with and you understand the inherent bias of it, but it doesn't default show you who you didn't speak with and who we excluded might have changed or colored how you might interpret this different context. And I think, again, as a market researcher, we often do part of that analysis, but we never share it because there's a lot of fuzzy math. I think one time I was working on a survey of TensorFlow users and we had to kind of ballpark how many people we thought we might have in this broader community so that we could set a target of 100, 200 participants that say have represented a sample in the community. But we had to sort of ballpark what those groups were, what those sizes were in order to set our standards. But we never wanted to share that because there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fuzzy math that goes into sort of these calculations of understanding broader distribution. So I don't know if there's necessarily a great way to do this, but I would love if we tried. I mean, I think there's definitely some cases in academia where they show all the ways that you sample down, but it doesn't necessarily, again, go into all the things that were cut out and how that changed the different population or distribution in your sample. And one of the woes of being an academic and not always having a connection with the community. We spoke to people who spoke to us. These are the people who we contacted and they responded to the survey, right? Academic surveys, even after giving raffles and I'm, this time I'm doing a contribution to a charity, you get 7% to 8% response rates, right? And Typically in social science, you want a response rate of 80%, which would show that you have things you are learning about is representative of the full population. And 7% is not bad. There's a lot of self-selection bias. So a lot of time is not who you cut off, but anybody who is interested enough to talk to you and interest could be because they care about it or because they really have something to say to you about it, right? So it can be that you are getting extreme opinions, so just wanted to add that. Even though if we come back to the discussion about the data itself that is produced by open source developers, perhaps the bias may come because of the data that you can gather. For instance, you mentioned GitHub, right? It's like probably the place to go because there are a big amount, a massive amount of open source projects that are using Git. But we have others. We have Bitbucket, we have GitLab, we have open source foundations that are using their own infra, even their own processes as the code review in the Linux kernel. So specifically mentioning the Linux kernel, because we are now running some research on the Linux kernel. And then it happens that because it's hard to analyze the code review in the Linux kernel, there are fewer number of papers that are analyzing that because it's simply more complex. So then what? What does it mean? So what it means is academics need to work with industry practitioners, because then you get the win-win, right? We write to you all the methodology that Sophia was craving, and mm. then the industry community people, right, can help us get access to the community where a lot of the research is, right? So sometimes I joke, what we have now is the science of GitHub and not really real science, right? So we need to get to the other communities that are active. There's a lot of things going on, but access is not as easy, Daniel mentioned. I've been struggling with sort of the behavioral nuance by the process of the platform too. So even though we look at GitHub-centric analytics, there's the reflection of the GitHub workflow and how we look at the data. Like I was looking at a lot of the personal forks that happen around pull requests process and sort of understanding someone's contribution as it relates to what's happening in their personal repositories, what's happening upstream. But then there's the element of, I also do a lot of analysis on Garrett as some of our projects use Garrett and code review. And the process of using Garrett is totally different from GitHub workflow and trying to understand the reviewer process and behavior around our projects. I've really been struggling to draw correlations and behavior across them. And I've had to have a lot more abstraction and engagement because the event types themselves reflect, again, the process of the platform and how we set up processes around the platform. And it's a distinct behavioral pattern than GitHub. And so trying to formulate a broader behavioral story across multiple different types of structure, I personally struggle with that a lot. And so kind of rambling on a tangent here. One thing just to add to what you said, Sophia, when I think about it that way, I'm thinking, what are the common software engineering processes that get followed? And that leads me to think about things like the MSR community will think about things. It's what's the technical process? How is the software engineering being conducted? And how do these tools facilitate that? And what deviations or different patterns do we see across projects generalizing for different tool use idiosyncrasies? That's one perspective. And I think the software engineering perspective is where a lot of open source software research lives right now. 
I personally, my research agenda looks at this more as a social technical phenomena where open source software is one of many ways of creating open work products. And it's by far the most advanced and detailed one for doing it. And it is because of that software engineering rigor that that's the case. So I would make the argument again for more social scientific research around open source. One thing I was thinking about transitioning to is we've talked about doing metrics analysis from software engineering standpoint and code review. You've talked about the surveys as a way to get deeper insights from people's personal experiences. And I know, Anita, you've worked with the Apache Software Foundation and really helped to bring to light some insights about the project, which in that design of the survey instrument, we have also looked towards the chaos metrics and used those. Maybe you can share some experiences from that. So this was the first survey I had done for a organization. My other surveys have been, we designed something as researchers, we deploy it, whatever results we get, we move on. But this was for Apache Source Foundation, which has international coverage. So many of the questions that we were asking about, like, hey, education, when I started with like, hey, high school and GED and college, but there was a lot of interesting communication conversations that happened with the ASF community about does these college or education level translate internationally? Like how does it matter to say in India or any other like African countries, right? So it was very interesting to take a step out and think about diversity of the different type of individuals who contribute to open source and in ASF in this case. Another thing that was kind of interesting was trying to figure out the policies, right? As I had mentioned before, in my surveys, we like to do some kind of incentive so that we get more people to respond. But as per the Apache rules, especially since it is international, different countries have different legal requirements. So there was a whole lot of conversation about, can we actually do incentives? Is it allowed? And if we do incentives for US, is that really fair to the others? So there's a lot of interesting conversations that happen when you're trying to get this social data in a context that is crossing international boundaries, international legal policies. Another thing that we decided to use for creating the survey in was an open source tool, Lime Survey. And then there was a whole conversation about where will the data be stored? Is it going to be GDPR compliant, right? So each of this decision, especially since we were working in an open source community and we were doing most of the conversations over Slack, it took quite a while. So it took us a year and we had started not just making up our survey, but looking at all the other surveys that existed, all the best practices. Even then we had to tweak quite a bit, right? And I don't know if Daniel, you have anything else to remember. We had all those meetings back and forth. That was a really interesting experience, we can say. So it is what you are exactly describing. So it took several months to get an agreement on what are specifically the right terms that we should be using and what makes sense in different countries or regions. So I would say from the overall more generic approach or design of the survey, most of the questions that we were discussing at the beginning were there or the main context. But then when you enter into the details, here's where people had a specific opinion on, no, this should be named as this, or this is too much US-oriented, right, or Europe-oriented. So then we should use this other terminology. So the, that feedback was super useful. So big thank you to the ASF community while helping us move this forward, because I think it was a learning experience from a research perspective. I'm not an expert personally in surveys. I was learning first a lot from you, Anita, and then I was learning a lot from the community. So it was a pure learning experience. I learned from the community a lot, and it was amazing how much of insight they brought and how detail-oriented they were. And I guess because they are used to having such conversations, being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and seeing how they would interpret the questions. That was interesting, especially with the different culture and context being put on. Nessie, Sophia has it. Again, so many thoughts. I think we had a podcast on this and maybe we can find it and link it here. But 
if folks have listened to me in the last year, at some point I've gone on a rant about taxonomy and how we need a better one or a more consistent one, especially if we think about what chaos has been trying to do around creating standard language and how we define metrics. I think a lot of that is coming to the same language that we all can agree means this thing. And it sounds like this project that Anita and Daniel were describing seemingly had to create the sort of cross-linking of how not necessarily taxonomy, but how these concepts or phrases or words are actually interpreted, not necessarily how they translate, but how they're interpreted, which is sort of provides a sort of contextual cultural element and interpretive element to what those things are. In my head, I'm thinking, wow, this is the actual taxonomy we need <laughs> in terms of like, we have all these terms and things that we define. I would just love to see that work. Is that something you could share? Clearly, the end product might have been published, but the meat of how you actually created that mapping of this means this in other cultures, even if it's all in English, would be incredibly valuable to see just because I think that a lot of work went into that. And I would love to make sure that more of us can build off of that precedent and ensure that we are improving our methodologies that align both culturally and sensitively to individual cultures while providing consistency in how we collect the data. So, Daniel, we should write that IEEE software paper that you were talking about of actually pulling all these decisions and explaining it because it went a lot of things and we have a lot in notes and some of which is in the report, but it's kind of fragmented and all over the place. So we should do yeah, that. Tell me when. Go for that. <laughs> I'm going to add something here that could easily and should probably be its own podcast. But I think it's important to mention from a research perspective, when you start talking about taxonomies and the common language, that one of the ways that researchers are starting to deal with this right now are through these large language models and through what is being branded artificial intelligence, though I would argue is simply unsupervised machine learning that's been around for a long time. When you start to think about that, we can filter through and identify common language patterns using this kind of machine learning very effectively. And in project badging form that we just released for the chaos project, something that is not yet released because of ethical considerations around the use of AI and ML is an automatic sort of dissection of the inclusivity of the language that's used in the posted information on a project. So what we're going to do is have a set of recommendations that are generally good and generally geared towards what projects can do to improve their inclusivity. However, we're not going to provide machine learning scores, ratings, evaluations, right? We're not going to put a machine in charge of telling projects specifically what is good or bad. So yes, it's a different topic, but I think this whole question of common taxonomies does lead us in this direction. It's great, all these considerations we have to do about how to design the survey. But then the next set of considerations comes is how do you present the data that you have gotten, right? And one of the things that in this survey we did that we wanted to make sure there were at least 10 people in a group. So if you're collecting sensitive data like gender, like sexual orientation, or even education, right? You want to make sure that there is no way that somebody's identity can be deciphered. Like there's differential privacy kind of concept. So if I know that somebody is working in a small project of whatever team size, and then how long someone has been at an open source project, and then know their gender, and if they are in a minority, might be possible to infer someone's gender correctly or incorrectly. Even if I incorrectly infer someone's gender and attribute a response to that, that brings a lot of harm. So I think one is very important is it's amazing to do all this analysis with the metrics, but we have to be very, very, very careful about how and what information we are able to surface and is right to surface and to whom. So we have to be very careful of that. Where do you see the direction going for research in open source using metrics and software like Chaos Software? I think it should go which is a deeper engagement from social scientists with the work that we're doing to understand open source software. Where I am concerned it's going is significantly more computational analysis using more sophisticated algorithms and larger data sets. And somewhere there has to be a balance. I feel there is still this silos, so industry, chaos, people, older people, all of you lovely folks who are listening to it are doing your own research. And we have this other parallel world where 
we as academics do our research. And then sometimes, like MSR paper that Sophia has, the two meet, but not as much. So we are kind of reinventing the wheel. Maybe the industry folks are not being as academically rigorous and academic folks kind of in their own ivory tower and not even asking the right questions. So what I think is important is we know how to do stuff now. What we need to now do is get the two different ends of the spectrum to meet together and then kind of ask more interesting questions and synergize and leverage each other's strengths. Yes. Perfect. I agree with that 100%. I think you've identified some aspect of Sophia's work that is really important, which is that she didn't take a look at the data she had and ask a question based on that data. She took a look at the question she had and then tried to figure out how to answer it, which I think too often researchers are not as incentivized sometimes to do because we want to publish as many papers as we can so we can get more money. Not incentivized to publish papers, but it's fun. No, it's terrifying, but also exciting. I'm really looking forward to more collaboration between the academic and industry professionals here, because I think this is an amazing place for us to build off of each other's knowledge and to further research and understanding and support of the broader open source ecosystem. So I'm generally feeling optimistic right now. I think the things that I'm concerned about are some of Anita's points earlier is just the systemic bias by focusing too much of our analysis on the data that we already have and not paying enough attention to the gaps and the places that are missing. So if I have one sort of lofty goal in the next few years of my work in this space, it's trying to think about how we can create more data from the white space and that we know there's so much other work and effort that's happening around these things that are not visible in trace data. And I think I've had this conversation with every one of the people on this panel, <laughs> but it's still a case where as an analyst, as Sean said, as much as the last project did start with a question and then we went and found the data, but I also just start with a pile of data and see what we can learn from it as well. But that is an inherently one-sided view of the problem. It is not a full picture. And I usually I end up leaning on other multimodal forms of research, going out and talking to people and trying to fill in the gaps and provide more context. So there's always elements to provide more visibility into the unseen component. But if we had better data, then that could help to fill in the gaps from a more systematic perspective. And especially if we think about how LLMs are going to start to magnify some of those same problems. That's kind of what I'm concerned about because it's easy enough to kind of feed in a bias source into a model and then it's only going to spit out what the model told it and what the data source told it. And I think that is inherently problematic unless we find ways to fill the gaps. I just want to highlight what Sophia said because it was kind of sandwiched between other things. Multimodal research analysis. I think that's super, super critical, right? Not only just archival data, but maybe survey, maybe interviews, maybe looking at all the docs that exist using LLMs and natural language. I think the key is to look at a item phenomenon from multiple lenses from different angles. And that always gives a much more well-rounded perspective of what's going on. Let me bring the pessimistic view here. So open source data is a place where you can get easily data. It's cheap data, we can say. It's high quality data, if you know what to do with this, but then it's cheap data after all. And then the point here is that if we think about the industry, the goals of the industry and academia are different. So how can I use this data to make research? And how can I use this data to make money? Unless we have a way, and here in this group, we are doing this, unless we find a way to bring together both worlds, then I think we may face certain problems. And then this reminds me of the last ChaosCon, where we had two really great presentations. One panel that was titled as Tension between Transparency and Privacy in Open Source Software Metrics Generation, where, Sophia, you were part of. And then a keynote by Julia Ferraioli on best practices for research in open source ecosystems. So if any of you have any interest in this topic, I would highly recommend at least to listen to those. Those are recorded. And at least it's a really great starting point to say, okay, how can I have an ethical use of the data that I'm consuming, either for the industry or from a research perspective? So Daniel, you said we will have certain problems arising out of the cheap data and the different goals of academic and industry. What are those problems that you foresee? So the point is that each of the areas are following their own path. 
let me bring an example, for instance, from Julia, from her keynote. She mentioned that there were people using commit messages. It was about doing mental health analysis of the people that were producing those messages. So where are the limits in research here? So that's one of the points. Another point would be all the AI, artificial intelligence bots that we can see around. How are they consuming all this data? Doing a fair use because the usage of the data, at least in open source, is initially only the fair use is about attribution. So basically this person did this and that's all, nothing else. So then that's why I see any usage of the data beyond these limits and somehow it's like, eesh. so where are the limits? That's still something probably we should discover. Yeah, I think there are legal questions that remain unresolved around copyright and fair use for a lot of this stuff. So just to kind of round out what Daniel said and what we have been hearing, right? Right now, there are different incentives and motivations for academics and industry. I think what we need to think about is how to align those motivations. Academics need money. Yes. So does industry like Biturgia need money? But maybe what is there is a role for foundations or even if there is enough community power behind it from the government to set up some kind of cross-cutting research ideas, right? Research centers or something that helps the different people with these different incentives and money is always a need for academics as well as for open source, that we can come together with some kind of seed funding or funding that helps both sides actually make progress. Google is amazing. They do a lot of helping and funding for academics. So that's a great start. There are also open source foundations that do research. So maybe this is one way of collecting different little pots of money that exist to take a bigger pot that can jumpstart or give a lot of steam to this kind of research that brings together academics and industry together. We will put a link to the ChaosCon 2024 Europe in Brussels in the show notes. And then from that website, we will, when it's ready, link the recordings of the panels and talks that Daniel just referenced, which thank you for bringing those up. This conversation has been fantastic. You are an amazing panel. Thank you. And I would like to transition now to the value adds. This is a segment of the podcast where we share something that has brought value, joy, or meaning to our life recently. And mine is baking cookies. I know that's something we usually do during Christmas season. And I had a friend that brought over cookies and I asked, so are these gluten-free? And she said, no, I didn't think of that. And I was like, okay, I'll share them with the rest of the family, but I can't have any. And so we made a deal to get back together, take her family recipe and see if we can modify it so it can be enjoyed gluten-free. And we had an experiment session last night where we substituted the flour for gluten-free flour, but it didn't behave the same way. And so we were trying all kinds of different things. And the kitchen was a mess, but the cookies in the end tasted amazing. So that has brought some value, joy, and meaning to my life. I have something far less personal, but I read a book recently called Language Variation and Change in Social Networks, and it specifically studies the city of Raleigh and how Southern linguistic patterns changed over the course of a decade and a half, gets at this unfolding of language as a way of signaling membership in a regional or national group. And I think some of these ideas just give me thought about how to approach some of the textual analysis of open source and other things. So recently we have been, Georg and we have been collaborating and writing a book on inclusive open source. So I'll sneak in a little bit of an advertisement for it too. So we are working towards this book and recently we finished five chapters of the book. And that was a major milestone since last year we had so many other personal issues coming in, but I felt super happy that we are halfway to the chapters done. So that was super cool. So I got accepted with a William Young that a talk in InfoSasia. So it happens that we've been talking for the last three years or four years about cultural differences. So William lives in Beijing, in China, and had the opportunity to visit China last December, thanks to the open people and so on. So thank you very much to them. 
So the point is that was the very first time I met him, but we were basically working on and discussing on these cultural differences for years together. And we've been reading two books. The first one is The Culture Map by Erin Mayer. It's a yellow one, maybe you know that. It's basically about how business works in difficult areas of the world. And the other one is From the Soils by Fei Xiaotong, which is a sociological approach to the Chinese society. So we've been sharing these thoughts once and again, forth and back. We want to bring to everyone our thoughts of someone living in Beijing and someone living in Madrid, in Spain, on how those two different cultures are approaching open source software and how they are approaching and interacting with open source foundation and other people and so on. And just a quick two thoughts. The first one is perhaps from a more Spaniard perspective, I can talk by myself. The way we approach an open source community is we enter there, we join the community, if we see that there is interest and we can leave the community at any time. But for Chinese society, I don't want to enter, I'm not, not an expert in the field, but my understanding is that there is something called rings of trust, we can say. So then it's quite important to build these networks of trust that will be basically there almost forever. So then if we want more people from different cultures to join us, at least from a more Chinese society, it seems that having a bridge, someone helping to make this happen, understanding both parts is definitely the way to go. But the joy for me is basically that I have this opportunity to Willem to go to Fosasia and present this there. I have to mention that my recent highlight has been FOSDEM. I was in FOSDEM in Brussels a few weeks ago where I saw almost everyone on this panel there. And if that was it, that would still be awesome, honestly. But I think the real silver lining for me at FOSDEM this year was none of my talks got accepted, which you might think like, okay, that's kind of a bummer. But that meant that I could fully immerse myself in the conference as a participant. And I have to say, I've forgotten how amazing that is. I think it's been trying to speak at every event you go to. You have to realize how much of the event you end up missing because you are too focused on making sure your slides are perfect or you know what you're going to say, you know how you're going to handle all those questions. And it really takes your mind and energy out of being present. And so I think now that I'm past it, I'm thrilled that my talks got rejected. <laughs> then I had the chance to attend as many sessions as I could stomach. I talked to so many people and I learned about cool new tools. Uh, there was this one in the open research track called Cosma, which is a tool designed to be a knowledge graph and help people build knowledge bases based on academic articles and their own links connection between them and adding their own metadata and information around it to help build their own knowledge base or graphing to connect all these various pieces together. Well, that's cool. Can I use that? And so, I don't know, just being in a space to learn about what people are excited about and it was just an amazing experience, and I'm still kind of riding off of the energy from that. So thank you, Garrett, Daniel, Sean, for hanging out with me in Brussels, and for anyone else who was part of that experience. It is a great event, and I highly recommend it to anyone considering it. See, that's one of the great things about having students. They get to give the talk and worry about it. <laughs> thank you so much, Anita, Sean, Daniel, and Sophia, for joining us on this panel today for this podcast episode thank you dear listener for joining us today we hope you enjoyed this episode until next time your chaos community